0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you would open up to Romans chapter 8. Welcome. My name is Sam. If you don't know what Romans is, just start in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the four Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Then you have Acts, which is the story of the early church post-resurrection. And then you have a book of Romans, which is not necessarily chronologically written next, but it is the biggest or largest book of theology in the New Testament. And we're in just one chapter because we're pansies. But we are working our way through, perhaps, what is the greatest chapter in the New Testament, perhaps even the Bible. I know it's a big claim, but Romans chapter 8 is a pretty awesome chapter. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, read... Romans chapter 8. If you want to see a mini-Romans, read the book of Ephesians and start in Ephesians chapter 1. They're very similar, but Romans chapter 8 tells you very clearly what it means to be a Christian. It provides a powerful description of what happens to a person when they respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news, which the word gospel means... The good news is not actions to take or advice to be followed in order to earn God's love. That would be really bad news because we would all fall short. The good news is simply news. It is proclamation about what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ, to be believed as we turn from our sin, turn from the love of the world, and embrace the love that is freely offered to us in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, you'll find as you read through it, it is devoid of any imperative statements. For those non-English teachers among us, imperative statements are authoritative commands of stuff to do. You won't find those in the Romans chapter 8 text. Instead, you have a chapter full of indicative statements of fact. Indicative statements of fact are are things that indicate what is. Specifically who we are because of what God has done to take sinners from death to life, from justification to glorification, from slavery to freedom. That's what the gospel is. I'm believing what God has done. I'm trusting in what God has done. I'm putting faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, What we find in these scriptures is a lot of indicative truths, facts that are really powerful and shape how we live our daily lives and really how we look to the future. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has saved us from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Romans 8 3 has said in the very beginning of this chapter that God has done what the law, which was this code of righteousness that God said, you want to live with me, you want to be in relationship with me, obey this. And guess what? No one could. All it did was show us who we were. I heard the other day that it was like a mirror, Right to show us our sin and all our dirt, but we can't use that mirror to clean our face. It just showed us how ugly we were. And so Romans 8.3 says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He fulfilled the law. He paid the penalty. He satisfied His own right justice. This is why Paul can say in the very first verse of the chapter, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no punishment for those in Christ because the law has been obeyed and fulfilled on your behalf by Jesus Christ. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ have died with Him because Jesus died the death that we deserved. And through faith, what we learn is that we became children of God through adoption. And children have really no participation other than passive participation in an adoption. God does something. And God goes from being our judge to our loving Father. And as a seal of that adoption, a permanent seal, a guarantee that we are a child of God, He gives us His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, also called the Spirit of Christ, comes and dwells in us and empowers our spirit to fight by the Spirit against our flesh. Because our hearts have been made new, but we're still encased in this broken body, and so there's a war going on. Paul wrote earlier, though, in Romans chapter six, he says again that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And then he says another indic- indicative statement: for the one who has died. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we believe also we'll live with him. So not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin, we have been saved and freed from the power of sin. We have the power to fight sin. We are no longer imprisoned by sin, enslaved by sin, overwhelmed by sin. No, we are not perfect. But in Christ we can now fight that we don't have to let sin reign in our bodies. We can fight sin and present our lives as instruments of righteousness. But here's the catch. Though we have been saved in Christ from the penalty of sin, and though we have been freed from the power of sin, guess what? We still live in the presence of sin. This is where our life takes place. Sin has not gone away, though we are no longer penalized for it, though its power cannot overwhelm us and ultimately condemn us. We still live in its presence. Sin still affects our lives. Paul wrote that as co heirs with Christ, our future eternal inheritance was assured, and as we ended last week, provided that we suffer with Christ in this present life, guess what? In the presence of sin. We suffer with Christ, freed from the penalty, freed from its power, but still in its presence, it still affects us. In many ways, we live in a war zone where the desires of the flesh are battling against the desires of the Spirit. And even though we wage war against what is a defeated enemy, because of the presence of sin in this world, and in our homes, and, and even in our flesh, faith is a fight. It's still a fight. It's a fight that we are guaranteed to win. But we get wounded in battle at times. So the question that Paul is going to push us towards in this text is how can we persevere in the presence of of suffering and sin. My wife has given birth to five children naturally. How? Right? She showed more strength those five times than I have ever seen anyone show in my life, and I know many husbands probably feel the same way. But that means that she has spent or endured 45 months of pregnancy, which in this church is JV compared to some, okay? (laughs) But that is nearly four years of pregnancy. Think about that. Or should I say four years of glorious discomfort, four years of glorious sickness climaxing in unimaginable pain, and you go, what carried my wife or what carried any woman through that experience? Five times. What helped her endure nine months of suffering? Five times. Insanity? No. Just the creature comforts that just make it better? No. Amazing husband? Maybe. No. You know what carried her through and all women through? Hope. And what is going to come after even through it all. It's they're, looking be- they're looking beyond it. And that's what we're talking about when we speak about our faith in Christ. So let's read Romans chapter 8, just verses 18 to 25 to see where we're going to spend our time. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this is God's word. Now, as we consider the first verses here, we see that Paul, having talked about being freed from the penalty of sin, freed from the power of sin, being adopted and indwelt, then he's like, life is suffering. He doesn't clean it up. There's a realness to suffering in our lives. And even though we have been saved from the eternal suffering to come, as Christians, we are not saved, if you will, in the same way from the suffering that is here now. Sometimes I wonder if suffering is worse in our lives because we don't expect it. Paul not only says that it is part of life, he actually declares here and elsewhere that it is part of life with Christ. It's not just part of life, it's part of life with Christ. You realize Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life. Okay, it was sinless. He did it right in every way where we did it wrong. And yet, guess what? His life was full of of suffering. The prophet Isaiah described Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I want you to think about this truth for a second. If we are going to be acquainted with Jesus, we are going to be acquainted with grief. And glory. But grief. Grief. I think sometimes people come into Christianity, come to believe in Jesus and believe everything in their life is suddenly going to be better and cleaned up in this romantic way they imagine. And I argue that it is better internally. It is better in enduring the storms, but the storms still come. We face them differently, but we still face them. That's why I really appreciate Ecclesiastes. Because it wasn't like, ah, life under the sun is horrible for everybody. It's like, yeah, it's horrible, but those who live with God under the sun endure, find joy, find hope. More than once, Paul calls Christians to share in the sufferings of Christ throughout the New Testament. Even going so far as to declare that his desire, I believe in the book of Philippians, is to share. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ so that I might become like him in his glory. It's his desire to have a life like Christ. That Jesus suffered. The fact that he suffered, whether you believe Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, the one who died on the cross for your sins, the one who rose from the dead to give you eternal life to anyone who would repent and believe, even if you don't believe that You're a fool not to believe in the historicity of Jesus, that he was a real person, that he really died, really suffered. Like that he suffered is undeniable. But I think it's important that we need to consider how he suffered. See, the Holy Son of God took on human flesh, and he endured a kind of suffering we cannot imagine, and it climaxed in the crucifixion. And yes, the pain and the shame involved in a crucifixion is pretty bad. But there is a greater spiritual suffering that's occurring there. A separation from God where he becomes sin is is something we'll never experience. And the question is, how did Jesus get through that? How did he endure that? How did he persevere? The book of Hebrews gives us insight. Everyone's probably familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the big you know chapter of faith where it names by faith this person by faith this person by faith this person and goes through all these people who lived by faith and most died and it begins following that chapter in chapter 12 not that verse not that verse not that verse not that verse not that verse, that verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the previous chapter, all these people live by faith, suffered, died. live by faith, live by faith. And he says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did He do it? Who for the joy that was set before Him. Well, that wasn't the cross. Nothing joyful about that. It was beyond the cross. It was the hope of what that crucifixion was going to accomplish, what the resurrection would mean. There was a greater hope that Jesus was driven by and toward. He endured the cross the pain of the cross, the suffering of the cross. There was a greater glory that the greatest suffering couldn't compare with. That was the greatest suffering ever anyone would ever endure. No one of us, no one ever born will ever suffer like Christ, and yet he looked at a greater glory beyond that. And so Paul reminds us of this future glory that is yet to come at the end of the age as we endure this life in the presence of sin. At the return of Christ, where the true church, our brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of God are all revealed. No more secrets. Those who are truly His children are revealed and God comes for them. Whatever kind of suffering that we experience now, Paul says, whether it be physical suffering or emotional suffering or social suffering, material suffering or spiritual suffering, That cannot compare to the future glory that is not only going to be revealed to us, but actually in us, where we will be changed. Paul said earlier, well, in a different letter in 2 Corinthians, that it's not even worth comparing. So what he says here, and he says this light momentary affliction isn't even worth comparing to the weight of glory that is coming. Holding to that truth as we wait and we suffer, that is the heart of our faith. This is where Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4 12 through 13. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something were strange happening to you. Isn't that interesting? That's in the Bible. Don't be surprised at suffering. Why why is this happening? Why are you surprised? This is not strange. But rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings or Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Always looking to the glory. Whether that's just the pain of the presence of sin in your own personal life, in your family, uh, in your community, Uh, in relationships, in your physical body, or that's the pain of persecution. Jesus experienced all those things. He looked, and we should look for the glory to come. I don't doubt that our struggle to believe that isn't just that a struggle. It's hard. But this is what I do believe. That when the glory is revealed and we've been with Jesus for 70 million years, for example, we're gonna look back at that dot of life that was 70 years and look at the greatest successes and the greatest failures as pretty insignificant. Everything will have given, been given perspective. And so I often think like, how often do you think about that future glory? How often we talk about the return of Christ? Perhaps as you get older and things start to break and life proves itself very Ecclesiastes-like, you go, oh yeah, Jesus, any time now. I want grandkids, but you know what? If i got to choose between waiting for grandkids and having Jesus, Jesus, come right now. I used to want to see my kids, you know, grow up, get, nope, come right now. I don't need to, in, in my, just now, right now. That future glory. That's the, I just don't know if people ask, like, like, what's a Christian? Mom, they're looking for something to come. If that's the first thing that comes to mind when we think about Christians, or just about your own faith. I'm not sure we would be described that way. We should be talking about, thinking about the future glory. And as you talk about the future grandness of God's glory to come, guess what it starts to do with the stuff in front of you? Makes it pretty insignificant. Well, Paul continues to say something kind of weird. Um, Not totally weird, but just different. That's not the verse I want. That's the verse I want. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's important. Hope's all throughout here. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now that's a weird thing to say. I just talked about the creation itself waiting for the end of the age. That's personification for you non-English teachers, right? Giving human attributes to non-animate things like creation, like, okay, Jesus, anytime, waiting, just like we are. More than that, it says creation's groaning. Can you hear it? Groaning? Maybe you heard it when that earthquake came, a little rumble, a little groan. Perhaps it goes without saying that we live in a broken and fallen world. But did you know, I know this is a dumb question, but did you know that the world wasn't always broken? Genesis 1 and 2 reveals that a good God created a good world full of good things, and everything was very good. But Genesis 3 reveals that God... Cursed creation. And he cursed creation because of man's sin. It was man's fault. Our fault. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 3. This thing works horribly. All right, Genesis chapter 3. It says, And Adam said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, unto Adam he said, not Adam said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, don't go too far with that, guys. Okay? And you read that, and you're like, yeah, that's how I got in trouble. No. Wrong. Put that out of your mind. Because you have disobeyed me, is what he should, really, the spirit of it says, and have eaten the tree of life which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust. And to dust you shall return. So, the universe is not in its original condition. It was cursed because of man's sin. It is now broken and stained because of man's sin. And although the Bible says that creation reveals God's glory in the mountains, and in all creative things, what we also see is that creation is being held back from flourishing. It's not giving us a beautiful picture of God. It's broken. So it groans, and as it groans, it reveals its brokenness, whether that's atrophy, things wear down, whether it be accidents, pollution, decay, death. It's evidently clear that nothing in this world works the way it probably should. Nothing is easy. It seems like everything under the sun eventually breaks down, wears down, or falls down. The world is bound up in corruption as it waits redemption. Paul describes these crones as the pains of childbirth, right? And those pains of childbirth have been happening since Genesis chapter 3. It's interesting, a woman who's been pregnant for nine months, Hang around a woman that's in the ninth month, She's got a glow, but she's also got a groan, right? I want this baby out. Got the waddle, got the tiredness, the discomfort, all that stuff, right? Seen it five times. And there's nothing you can do, like massage, like whatever, like I can't do nothing. We live in a world that's been pregnant for thousands of years. Think about that. Think it's going to groan a little bit? It's going to be in pain and discomfort a little bit, a little sick, a little tired. The world is run down, worn out, and in many ways, um, it's, a, it's a pretty good apologetic for the, wor- for the world. The brokenness of the world is a very good apologetic for the world, an apologetic for redemption. Anyone's like, do you really think this world is functioning the way it should and if they think yes, like, yeah, I think it's, you know, pretty good. Like, really? Like, what about people? Think they're all functioning the way that they should? It seems like something's broken, doesn't it? Like something's off and everyone knows it. That's an incredible way to talk about why the world is broken and where there might be hope to find. God cursed the world, and he cursed it, though, in hope of restoring it to its future glory. And when we think about hope, like, God cursed it in hope. It's not like God's like, oh, I hope this works, right? With God, when God hopes, that's not like, cross your fingers, hope this works, angels, Right? It's a certainty, it's a promise that this is going to happen. Things are going to be restored. Things are going to be fixed. The presence of sin is going to be removed. God's response to sin was not spontaneous, but it was planned. What do I mean by that? If you read the book of Revelation, you find an interesting phrase. It talks about the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that's Jesus. So Jesus was slain as part of a plan that was made before the foundation of the world, which means sin never surprised God. That might disturb you. That's what the Bible teaches that God planned for this redemption. This was not plan B. Plan A was always to see the redemption and the glory and the beautiful display of God's love and grace and mercy and justice, His fullness of who He is through this story of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're planning for grace, you're planning for sin. But it's not only a spiritual redemption. It's interesting. This good news, especially to Uh, The people of Paul's day, because in Paul's day, there was a group of people called the Gnostics. And they taught some strange theology, particularly that the material world, the fleshly world, the created world, stuff you could touch and feel was bad, and the only good thing was the Spirit. And through secret knowledge, you too could learn the ways of the Spirit and be transported to a heavenly place away from this big, bad, fleshly, touchy world. That was what they believed. And so you're talking about a God taking on human flesh. Oh, no way. That's evil. God would never do that. But think about Christians. Like, what's the, what's the greatest hope for a Christian, right? I want to fly off to heaven. Be away from this place. I, I was so impressed by what Tim Keller wrote one time or said one time. He said, don't forget that the picture at the end of Revelation is not people flying up to heaven, it's heaven and earth coming down. It's the restoration of not just our hearts and lives spiritually, it's the restoration of all creation. The Lord loves this world and he's going to make it new. So as we look at our broken bodies and the broken world and all these broken things, we can get excited and say, these things are going to be restored. They're going to be made perfect. That the birth pains are happening right now, but Jesus is actively making all things new. And that actually governs our participation in this world now, that the world is not bad. It's going to be fixed and restored and beautiful. And in in many ways, it's going to be like what we do now, flourishing like we do now, but without sin. We can't even imagine what that's like, because everything we see is tainted with sin. And so he's talked about creation, but notice what he says here now. No, I don't want that. No, I don't want that. Give me that verse uh, 20, the last, verse 23, Joel, if you see that. I got to fix that thing. He says this And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he says, What do you say? Creation's groaning. And guess what? That's not the only thing groaning. We are groaning inwardly, right? It's easy to go, Look at all the pain out there. Look at all the brokenness out there. What about in here? What about the screwed upness in here? The world is very good, as our Christians, at pointing at, look at all the bad stuff. Look at all the bad stuff. Look at all the broken stuff. Okay? Creation is pretty messed up. And so are we. You could probably fix the stuff on the outside by politics and plans and all these things. But how are you going to fix this? Because that's where the real problems are rooted. We ourselves are groaning. Everyone can see the world is broken. Everyone can feel, though, that they are broken too. The world doesn't work the way it should, and guess what? Neither do we. Neither do we. There is incompleteness, even an an incongruency to who we are and, and who we're supposed to be. And we feel it. This is evidenced by physical pain. It's evidenced by emotional pain for those of us who are struggling with either one of those things. But so much more than that, there's relational pain. Why do relationships have to be hard? Well, because you're difficult. That's why. And so are they, right? Why do I have to be so emotional sometimes? Why do I get angry about that? Why do I have to struggle with that temptation? I'm sure none of those things apply to anybody here. But that's the groaning. You ever had that? "Ah, I don't wanna ah, I don't wanna feel like this, I don't wanna think like this, I don't wanna do like this. That's the brokenness that we're experiencing inwardly. Just as the world is pregnant, right? In many ways, so are we. We're getting larger. We're waiting. It's getting more uncomfortable, starting to feel sick. Don't like it. And here's the thing, you can't see what's enlarging you. You can feel it, but something's growing and it even hurts a lot at times. But we are looking beyond that pain, right? We're looking what's to come. And what's to come is something that will blow your mind. It is when your bodies and your minds are free of sickness. It's when your mind is free of doubts. It's when your mind and your body are free of any kind of weakness. It's when you're free of any kind of temptation or struggle. That's what we're looking forward to. And that day is coming, that day is promised, that day is guaranteed and the longer that day like we're waiting for it guess what the bible says the greater the anticipation for that end is should be i want that more i want that more as you begin to see perhaps as you get older and you realize just how broken you are and how much in need of a savior you are and so to help us on the road of restoration we've been given the first fruits of the spirit it is that's not a play on words i mean really it's it's a journey of restoration to become what we are always meant to be. Jesus told his disciples, I don't know if you knew this, we've been given the Holy Spirit, we kind of like, oh, we got the Holy Spirit, but if Jesus was here, do you know what Jesus told his disciples as he was about to be crucified? He said, yeah, it's better that I go. It's better for you that I go that the Spirit might come. Implying that the intimacy with God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is better than if Jesus was with us in the flesh. That's powerful, but I'm not sure The Holy Spirit is the person with which we engage with like that. But He's the first fruits. He's given us a a foretaste of the feast that is to come. And the more that we walk in the Spirit, that's what Romans 8's been talking about, the more we set our minds on the Spirit, the more we begin to taste the things of the Spirit and taste that future glory to come and want it more and more. In some sense, we are adopted spiritually but we are yet to be adopted fully in one sense we are redeemed but we're also waiting for the redemption of our bodies in one sense we are saved but we're also waiting to be fully saved and experience the fullness of that salvation yes we are saved from the penalty of sin now yes we are saved and freed from the power of sin now but one day you know what's going to happen. The presence of sin is going to be replaced with the presence of God in its fullness. One day, and that will be glorious. You're going to look good, and so am I. Right? You don't even know what your glorified self looks like. It looks mighty fine, right? Free of sickness, free of temptation, free of struggle, emotional, physical, in every way you can. Relationships are not going to be hard. Love will be easy. Work will be a joy. It's like, that's... Yeah, what? That's, that's crazy talk. I know. It's a return to the garden, living in the presence of God, where we eat and drink without obesity or drunkenness. Let's close it out. Paul writes in these last two verses, I think some of the most powerful words. I don't think I wrote them down. That's okay, we'll go back and leave it there. For in this hope we were saved. Okay, this hope. For in this hope you were saved. Salvation isn't merely, I was saved from something. I'm saved to something, promised something. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So he brings us back to hope. Hope is this essential element of our salvation, a simple, an essential mark of the presence of the Spirit in our life. We are saved by faith in hope. Saved by faith in hope. Okay, We're not saved by hope. We're not saved in faith. We're saved by faith in hope of something to still come. Yes, something is here, but something is yet to come. I like how, I think it's here. Yeah, okay, good. One commentator said it this way. Faith, the difference between the two. Faith looks backward and upward. Hope looks onward. So I look backward and go, oh man, I am a screw up. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Hope is onward. Faith accepts, but hope expects. Faith is concerned with who promises, which is hugely important, but hope is occupied with the good things promised. Faith appropriates, but hope anticipates what is yet to come. Faith is always centered on the return of Jesus Christ. Hope, I'm sorry, faith is always centered on the redemption of Jesus Christ, and hope is always centered on His return. The verse that was read earlier today in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, what has He done? He has caused us to be born again, there's faith, to a living hope through what? the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the like receipt. That's the receipt on our hope. Why can I believe this? Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin, Satan and death. There's the receipt. If Jesus didn't rise, we have no hope. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there's hope in this life and the next. And we've been raised to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, not that I have it, in what's to come. I rejoice, though right now it stinks. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, which I'm sure we all have in some way. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The endurance. I believe this. I believe this. Ouch! I believe this. Ouch! I believe this. Ouch! I believe this. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is expressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a beautiful picture of what is yet to come. Now, what does it mean to live as one saved while hoping in a future salvation? How can I endure in hope as I wait in this present life? I don't doubt that is difficult. But Romans 4 gave us an interesting thing. Guys, hopefully remember Abraham, the story of Abraham. Abraham was like 100,000 years old or something, super old, and God comes to him is like, you're going to be the father of a gigantic nation. He's like, seriously? You see my wife? You see me? Like everything he saw, I was like, that is not going to happen, right? We're sleeping in separate tents. Like, no, it's not going to work. He was childless, 100 years old, and Paul writes this in Romans 4.18. It says that in hope he believed against hope. is that a weird phrase? In hope he believed against hope. What does that mean? Everything he could see to hope in was not going to bring that to pass. And so he hoped beyond what he could see. He hoped beyond what he could understand. He hoped ultimately what God promised despite what made sense to him that's hope despite seeming hopeless in, this, in the midst of suffering we all have something emotional suffering spiritual suffering where there's a temptation you just can't seem to beat physical suffering where your body's breaking down you've been struggling for some time relational suffering like well like how can I hope in that I think Three basic ways. Meditate on what God has said, not on what you think or feel. Where do we spend most of our time? What we think and what we feel. So, open up God's word and meditate on what he says. And I'm not just making that up. It's in the word. Look at this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that's good, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Oh! Where do I find hope? In the Bible! Encouragement comes from reading God's Word. Endurance comes from meditating on God's Word. Hope comes from believing God's Word. If you are feeling hopeless, I assure you, you are not spending enough time reading God's Word. I'm not telling you to read God's Word because God's going to be impressed or love you. If you want to have hope, read the Word. I want hope. Second, not only meditate on what God has said, meditate on what Jesus has done and not what you have done or not done. Meditate on what Jesus has done. Not what you have done or not done. When you think of your faith in Christ, your Christianity, your walk, where does your mind typically go? What have I done or what have I not done? The gospel tells us to think of Christ. Because if you start thinking about all things you have done, welcome to pride. If you start thinking about things you have not done, welcome to despair. We need to be with Christ. Let me prove it to you. Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. Right? The grace of God, the undeserved love of God, the unmerited favor of God, the unearned mercy of God. It's brought salvation. Grace has brought salvation to all people. What does grace also do? Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. Whoa, whoa, I thought ungodliness was trained by beating it out of people and telling them to be good. No, actually, it's grace. Grace trains us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What? There it is, waiting for our blessed hope—the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace, not works, it was leads us to purity. Grace, not works, is what trains us for godliness. Grace. And dwelling on present grace is how we actually hope in future grace. Dwelling on the present grace you have reminds you of the future grace yet to come. Lastly, we meditate on what will we will be, not on what we are. Meditate on what you will be, not in what you are. I think all of us in some level um, are our worst critics. And you will beat yourself like the accuser, the enemy. Man, he doesn't have to try real hard. He can give a little whisper and they will just kind of like continue the ball with self-condemnation. Don't do that. Because who we are right now, yes, in Christ we are perfect. But who we are in our flesh is, it's broken, it falls short. We know it, you know it, I know it, we know it. Focus on what you will be. What God promises you will be in Christ. Let me prove it to you. 1 John 3. This is where you should dwell. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. I believe that's how you hope in the midst of suffering that's the result of living in the presence of sin. We hope in Christ. If you're a believer, and you find yourself pretty hopeless, I wonder if it's because you're spending too much time nasal gaze you know what I mean? Nasal, navel gazing. <laughs> I don't know how you stare at your nasal, that'd be pretty impressive, right? Looking at yourself as opposed to looking ultimately at God's word, at God's son, and at God's promises. So if you're a believer who is sensing the hopelessness in whatever amount of suffering you're having, I think it's where you're set in your mind. And as we close, I would love to pray with you up here as communion is happening, just to pray that you will find a renewed hope in Christ. A hope now and, and a hope yet to come. And if you're not a Christian, I'd also invite you to come up. See, people are already coming up. And to maybe for the first time find hope in your life. Because there's not hope to be found in this horizontal world. Anything you hope in in this world can be taken away given enough of time or tragedy. But there's something that can never be taken away, and that's found through turning from your sin and believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you for who you are. And we thank you for the hope that you have given us in Christ. Lord, we groan, the world groans, everything's broken. You know it, we know it. Would you restore and renew hope in us? Would you remind us of what is yet to come? Would you help us to endure, Lord, through the, the real sufferings of life, the emotional and the physical and the spiritual struggles of life, trusting that, Lord Jesus, you are returning. And even as you are making all things new now, you then will make all things new in a moment. We will be restored. Lord, we pray for that restoration. We hope for that restoration. Holy Spirit, work in that restoration in us now, but help us to hope in the restoration yet to come. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.